Let's start all over. So, well, there's nothing <laughs> He hasn't said anything. Matthew 8, somebody read 1 to 4. Nothing worth recording, did When Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. And a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go, show yourself to the priest, and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. So, Jesus begins healing, and these first three healings are kind of interesting. He's going to heal a leper, a Gentile, and a woman. Maybe none of them from the social classes that would have been most impressive in his day, but Jesus reached out to people in every situation. And he wasn't worried about the cultural uh, restrictions. Uh, he had compassion on those who, who needed help. And so here's this leper. What would Normally people wouldn't have had much association with a leper for fear of contamination. But when this leper comes to him, bows down before him, the leper says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And what did Jesus do? I'm willing to be clean. Yes. And what did he do? He touched him. He touched him. <laughs> People would never have touched a leper. Probably this leper had not been touched by ye in years by anyone other than a fellow leper. You know, because people were afraid of that. But Jesus would touch the untouchables. You know, he would reach out to those who seemed uh, repulsive and repugnant. And really, it's a good model for Jesus' attitude toward people in sin. Leprosy is about as disgusting and filthy as what sin is. And nobody ever felt too unclean to come to Jesus, to be healed either physically or spiritually. And, and, and look at what this says about Jesus. What did the healing depend on? Just one factor. If he's willing. If he's willing. He said, I'm willing. That's all it takes. If Jesus is willing, the leprosy disappears. Can you imagine what that would have looked like? Here this man has his skin all disfigured, all sorts of sores and everything. And Jesus said, I'm willing. And suddenly his skin changes right before their eyes and becomes whole. It really shows you the power that, that Jesus had. And, you know, just really impressive. And then Jesus tells him not to tell anybody. Jesus is not trying to do this as a publicity stunt, but he does want him to go and follow the procedure of the law when leprosy would go into remission to present an offering of gratitude toward God. Comments and thoughts on this story? Question. Uh, okay, so he said, go there and then do your sacrifice to, 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 to God, as the Moses commented. So why, why would he need to do that if... If Jesus was going to change everything, then why why he tell him to go go do the you know he was against with the old you know the the old tradition of the Jewish people, right? Yes and so no. So why would he support the tra the old tradition? I let let me explain a couple things. One is there's a difference between the law in the Old Testament and the traditions the Jews had added to that. Now, Jesus totally disregarded the traditions they had added on human authority. Jesus came to bring the gospel, a new covenant. 
and he taught about the new covenant. But Jesus still lived under the old covenant, under the law of Moses, until he died. When Jesus died, he nailed the law to the cross, and that's when the blood, his blood inaugurated the new covenant, the new testament that we are under. So Jesus never broke the laws of the Old Testament, and he told people to keep them until he died and the new covenant came into effect. I see. All right. Very you. good question. Yeah. Other <coughs> questions or comments? <coughs> All right, 5 to 13. And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him, and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes, and to my slave, Do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled, and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the <coughs> centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. Interestingly, this is the only miracle story in both Matthew and Luke, but not Mark. Or whatever that's worth. Um, you've got this centurion, and that means he was an army officer for the Roman army. And he came asking for what? For his son? Yes, for his servant, perhaps, is the better translation. His boy, literally. But probably talking about his servant. What was wrong with him? He was paralyzed. He was paralyzed. He was suffering greatly. Now, there's several things you see in this. One is, isn't it impressive that he cared about his servant? You know, in that day, you know, most, you know, servants were mostly treated like a toaster. It was cheaper to get a new one. You know, they didn't really care about him. You know, they were pretty cheap. You could buy them at auction. But he cared about his servant. So that says something good about him. And then, what was his attitude? There's a question in verse 7. <coughs> Always in, in Greek, you don't have punctuation. So you don't know whether this is a statement or a question. It's probably better in verse 7 to read this as a question. Shall I come and heal him? It's, it's, a, it's just an interpretive question. But that, he may be asking a question. Well, you want me to come and heal him? But what does the centurion say about that? Does does he want Jesus to come and heal him? No. Why not? Because he thinks that's unnecessary. He thinks it's unnecessary and he is... Unworthy. Unworthy. He doesn't feel like he's good enough for Jesus to come to his home. That shows his humility. He recognizes how much greater Jesus is than he is, and he's an army officer. You know, so he would have a higher rank than Jesus... But he sees Jesus as above him, and he doesn't think it's necessary. Why not? Because he has faith that that what he knows he can. Or he thinks he believes he can heal him without him having to come to be with him. Yes, 
that Jesus' word has authority. You know, that just like when this centurion gives an order, people obey it wherever they are. So when Jesus gives an order to the disease, he believes he doesn't have to be present. The disease will have to obey him. That's pretty impressive faith, really. You don't read anybody else in the New Testament that was saying things like that and really believed Jesus' power was that great. So that was really, uh, it was really kind of a model for, for his discipleship. Now, I might add one thing right here of clarification. The account in Luke, it appears that the centurion did not personally come to Jesus, but there were others who came on behalf of the centurion and talked to Jesus. Some people pick up on differences like that and think, well, there's a contradiction in the Bible. Did the centurion come or were other people coming on his behalf? Well, I don't think that's a contradiction at all. What, do we, what happens when you listen to the news and it says, President Obama said today, blank, 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 blank. Well, you know what? Half the time, President Obama didn't say a word. Who spoke? His press secretary. His press secretary. He spoke on Obama's behalf. He spoke the words Obama wanted him to say. And so the news report says, Obama said today this, when we understand it was through his press secretary. That's not a contradiction. That's what I do through somebody. It's me that doing, that's doing it. You know, and so when, when people came on behalf of the centurion, they were speaking in his name. And so there's really no contradiction, but probably the centurion was doing this through others that came and represented him. What was Jesus' impression of this centurion? He marveled. Yeah. It's just amazing. What was amazing to Jesus about the centurion? That he is a Roman. And yet... Yeah, he is more faithful than any Jewish that he's... He had more faith than the Jews who had had all their heritage of faith in God. You know, it's amazing that somebody who was raised probably as a pagan has more trust in Jesus than those who have inherited, uh, uh, you know, a whole history of faith. Uh, there's only one other time in the Gospels when Jesus marveled. And that was in Mark 6, 6, when he marveled at the unbelief of the Jewish city of Nazareth. So Jesus either marvels because the Jews don't believe, or marvels when the Gentiles have such great faith. And he goes on to say that in the Lord's banquet at the end of time, a lot of times, you know, heaven is described as a great banquet. He said there's a lot of people who are going to come from far away, and they're going to sit at the table... But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There'll be a lot of Gentiles that will be there at the banquet, and there'll be a lot of Jews who will be cast out. So that must have been a shocking revelation to the Jews who had thought they had their place in heaven guaranteed. So he would have for sure been a Roman just because... If he's a centurion, there's no other army that had centurions. Like it wouldn't be like an, a Jew who... No, and certainly not from Jesus saying, you know, I haven't found this great faith with anyone in Israel. 
But yeah, I don't think normally they would use as an army officer somebody from a different nationality. Probably not. That would be kind of dumb. <laughs> You'd turn on them. Comments, questions? Like David and Priscilla. <laughs> yes, that's true. Yes. What, what would his uh, faith have consisted of at this point? Well, he trusted that Jesus could say the word and his servant would be healed. Yeah, so, I mean, even at this time, isn't that mostly what Jesus would be referring to is just his power to heal? Because he's not, I mean, that's, that's what he's demonstrating, and they believe that he can do that. Yes, but, but he saw him as a man in the chain of authority over those things. So he sees him as somebody who has power over sickness and disease. But I think that is what he sees in Jesus at this point. Right. I mean, there's a lot of people that, are, that will come to Jesus to be healed because they believe he can heal, but some of the same ones will not follow him when it comes down to believing in him being the Son of God and, and the Messiah, I guess. Yeah. So, I mean, there's obviously a connection there. <laughs> I mean, Jesus seems impressed with him, and Jesus right. knows people's hearts, so it may at least be he was on the road to developing more mature understanding of Jesus. I don't know. Okay. What is the, uh, the word reclining? Like, is that clanging? No, to recline is like to, um, well, <laughs> they didn't eat in chairs. They had low couches and they would actually stretch out. They'd like lay down like this, and they'd eat like this. They would do okay. this. So reclining is the position they would have at a table. We sit at a table, they'd recline at a table. I don't know, what are you doing in Burma? Do you sit or do you recline? Or? All right, Indian style we call it. Yeah. So when you, when you read it, they're going to go eat. Okay. They're going to sit down and eat. All right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's the point. They'll be there around the banquet table sharing in this, you know, meal, really referring to the joys of heaven. Yep. Yeah, so it's not talking about a, an actual physical meal. meal. Yeah, yeah, physical meal. <coughs> Other questions or comments? All right, the third healing in a row, 14 to 17. <coughs> When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and waited on him. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. This was to fulfill what he was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmites and carried away our diseases. Okay. So, look at Jesus. Look at the verbs associated with Jesus in 14 and 15. Jesus came, came and he saw, saw and he touched. touched. I like the idea of Jesus was always ready to serve. He came, he saw, so he acted, not just when he was on duty, you know, like in the synagogue. Here he is in a home, but he comes and he sees she needs something, so he immediately goes into action. 
the leper took initiative to come to Jesus. The centurion comes on behalf of his servant, but here Jesus just sees she's got the fever, and he takes the initiative to heal her. So look at the verbs associated with the woman. You know, the fever left her, and so what did she do? Got up and served, waited on him. Jesus served her, and then she began to serve him. Isn't that a model of what a disciple ought to do? Jesus heals so that we can serve. And that's what she does. I'm sure she was grateful for being healed, and she was glad to serve him. And then it's not only her, but they bring to him all these who are demon-possessed, And he heals all the sick. And he remembers Isaiah's words that talk about Jesus bringing, I think, spiritual healing. But the physical healing is a sign of that. It points to visible healing ability that shows Jesus' invisible healing ability. Where is that found in Isaiah? Isaiah 53. Okay, I thought Comments and questions. From from a parallel passage, isn't this was this one occurred on a Sabbath, didn't it? Mm. Or the the when evening came makes me think that it was after the. Yes, I think that's correct. I think from Mark one it was a Sabbath. Yes. Yeah. Good good comment. Other thoughts. Well, we interrupt the healings for a couple of little stories about people who really wanted to follow Jesus. 18 to 22. And when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side. And a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. (laughs) Well, so much for that. Jesus is going to the other side of the sea. You know, you see he's always in command of every situation. Now here's a couple people who see Jesus and they wanted to go with him. And one was too quick to promise and the other one was too slow to perform. So the first one says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. What do you think about him making a commitment like that? It sounds good. What did you say, Caleb? He needs to think about it. Yeah, why? Because you just don't go off making promises without knowing what's going to happen. That's exactly right. It's easy for us to make a rash commitment, to uh, just kind of be swept away with the emotion and, and just, oh, Jesus, I'll follow you anywhere you go. Well, now, Jesus has something pretty uh, wise to suggest that he reflect on this. He says, uh, maybe you should know where I'm going. <laughs> yeah, you're going to fo- tell somebody, I'll follow you wherever you're going. Uh, I think I'd like to know where they're headed first. You know, that would make sense. Jesus said, now listen, you know, follow me wherever I go. I don't have a place to sleep. (laughs) Uh, He's kind of dampening the man's enthusiasm. Maybe you ought to think about what that means 
before you make that commitment. God does not want shallow followers. He doesn't want people who just say they're going to and then they don't. And Jesus never tried to deceive people by saying it was going to be easier than what it would be. Jesus is always realistic and he, he encourages people, stop and think about how hard this is going to be before you do it. We would have said, oh, come on, that'll be great. But Jesus gives him a challenge. Um, and, and if you're going to be a disciple, it's not going to be easy. But follow Jesus, you're going to be deprived of some things. You know, don't ever think, oh, I'll be a disciple and it'll be a, a piece of cake. It's, it's hard. And it, it's challenging. We can do it. We can follow Jesus, but we're not going to have all the comforts and luxuries we were accustomed to a lot of times. Comments on that man? Yeah, I think that the reason why Jesus said to him is because I, I kind of relate to my the, that verse with my own life. And, you know, sometimes people will come into Marine Corps and think, oh, I want to be Marine, I'm going to be a warrior. And then we actually went through Iraq and then had no food, you know, actually went, went through, you know, with uh, for 30 days of you know, not taking showers, all this. Stuff. Even in boot camp, they, people, a lot of people run away after boot camp. Oh, Marine Corps is not my thing. I'm just going to quit, you know. Because mm -hmm. I know that from Indiana, we went uh, we went with seven guys. And then me and Remy, they're the only two guys. Oh, okay. The, the um, Hinkle, he come back. So there's a, only three guys left in Marine Corps that I know that who went with. So out of seven, full quit. So it's like being... Even in Marine Corps, you still have like some sort of, you know, like downtime, you know, some sort of, you know, you still can, you know, come back and relax at your barrack, you know, drink a couple beers or not, all these things, you know, but as a, as a, you know, as a Christian, you know, Jesus said, I don't even have a place to sleep. I don't, because he, he, he was promising that maybe you don't, you might not have, you know, you might not know, he's trying to say how tough it's going to be for the life. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise, people will just quit, yep. you know, once they see what it takes. And it is tough to follow Jesus. It's tough to be a disciple. It's worth it. But it's not for babies. You know, you got to be tough. Because the conditions aren't the greatest a lot of times. And he wants committed disciples. Well, look at the second guy. What does the second guy say? Permit me to first go bury my father. Yeah. You know, what's his what's the mistake right there? There's one word that was a big no-no. First. first. Jesus always comes first. You don't do anything else first. You know, that's just the way that is. Jesus doesn't want an army full of shallow volunteers who are putting everything else before him. And so Jesus says something that's kind of shocking. Follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. You know, I want a commitment with no reservation. The dead can take care of themselves. <laughs> you know, um, there, there is, we can't postpone things because of family responsibilities or because we got something else come, come up. You know, I'm sorry, I can't do it now. No, if you follow Jesus... Other things take care of themselves. He is top priority. That is the number one thing. What did he mean when he said, like, I always imagined, like, his father was, like, out there in the field, dead, and he was going to, like, go bury him. Does he mean that? Or did he mean, like, my father's old and I need to stay with him until he dies? Like, what was this picture? 
I don't know. Why <laughs> Jesus was like, well, you can't bury him. Well, it's, it's more the principle. It's the principle. Okay. I don't know whether this guy was dead already, whether he was, you know, had one foot on the banana peel and the other on the grave or what. But, you know, one way or the other. That was dad's expression. What was it? One, you have one foot on a banana peel and the other foot in the grave. What? Banana peel is slick, so you're probably going to go to the grave quick. Uh, you're about to die. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that before. Oh, really? I'm not sure I even heard it from them. Oh, well, so, have you heard that expression? No. Have you, have you heard it, Mom? Oh, yeah. I've never heard She is Grandpa's uh, daughter. So. But anyhow, I don't know if the guy was dead already or if he was just about to die or, you know, whatever. It really doesn't matter. If, if I would put burying my father over serving Jesus, even if he's dead already. Jesus has to be the priority. He has to be the first. Can, can God ask people to do hard things? Yeah, absolutely. He asks to be the priority over our family, over anything. This has really given me a great opening to do something. I was thinking about doing this anyway, and this is a great passage to do this with. I want to read you something. I need to set the context a bit, but this is more moving to me than it will be to you because I know the people involved. But you guys know Marcos and Fernanda. Well, their group is a very small group. There's like two other men that like teach and preach and do things like that. They're from Brazil. In, in Brazil. It's a very small group. And there's one man who's a new convert. He's just starting to do some things publicly. Well, Marcos is here. So that leaves the other two. And, well, you'll see what the situation is. The other two, this is from Everton. Everton, he wrote me this day before yesterday, or yesterday. Um, he is probably 24, and he uh, came from Sao Paulo. He moved to Porto Alegre two or three years ago, two years ago, probably. He's a very good brother. He said, I'd like to ask me something. I'll translate this. He said, three months ago, I enrolled to take the vestibular, for a college. The vestibular is the mandatory test that you take to get free college. And uh, he said, I would like a lot to try again to do the course that I stopped in Sao Paulo. And in the Federal University here in Porto Alegre, I would have this opportunity. So I already enrolled about three months ago to take this test. There are four days of tests and all of the tests are in the morning. And the tests begin Sunday. So I would miss the worship service and the Lord's Supper. Since Marcos is not here, I thought that Chiago, who's the other brother, would be able to stay and prepare a study in the Lord's Supper. But a week ago, Chiago's brother told him that he is going to get married on this very weekend that I will be doing the test. And Chiago is going to the wedding and he won't be able to get back for the worship service. Of the three men that do studies, no one, there, there will not be anyone there. <coughs> uh, he said the vestibular, the test, was one thing that I really wanted. But also, I cannot leave my brothers without them meeting together. Of the men that would be in the meeting, None of them have ever done a study. 
Jefferson is beginning to do the Lord's Supper now. Therefore, I would like to hear or read that the position that I'm going to tell you is not wrong. I decided that I'm not going to do the test anymore, and perhaps I'll try next year. I am going to participate in the church meeting. I've already heard from you and from Dennis various times about the commitment that we have to be servants. To do the test is what I want, but I do not have in me, from the time that I was baptized, I do not have more choices or, or my own will. I am a servant. Isn't that encouraging? Mm-hmm. So that means, at, at best, that delays that for a year as to whether or not he could even, you know, enroll. But I thought that was a very encouraging, encouraging opportunity for him. I encourage him to do that and not to feel sorry for himself, but to be thankful that he gets an opportunity like that to show how much he loves the Lord. So that was very encouraging. That's what we do. First, the Lord. You know, even if that means you leave other very important things aside to be a disciple of Jesus, he's first. This guy needed to know that. Thoughts and comments about that? So it appears that this this was something that was preventing him from committing to following Jesus. Well, yeah, he could follow Jesus after other things, you know, just kind of lower on the priority. That is more of the principle. He's certainly not saying don't ever have a funeral and don't bury dead people. And he's just saying. Don't ever do that over him. Yeah, don't choose that instead of choosing to follow me. Yes. You know, you read this and you almost get the impression it's like, hey, can you go with me down to the, you know, to the store? It's like, no, I got to go to a funeral. Oh, well, you can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> that's not the that's not the principle of the matter. Yeah, the principle is nothing comes before Jesus. Right. If you say I'll follow you, but first I got something else to do, right. you got the order wrong. It always is first follow Jesus. You know, when, so that when your commitment is first to Jesus, then you do what Jesus wants before anything else. There are other things you can do and still follow Jesus, but you first do whatever Jesus says. And if what you're doing interferes with what Jesus says, Jesus is the choice. This guy showed by saying first he wanted to do anything else, that he's putting the wrong thing first. Again, he can't do that. It always has to be first the Lord. I always read this as almost like, you know, Jesus calling him to be a disciple, to follow him. It's like, yeah, yeah, I'll do that, but let me go take care of a couple things. Yeah, I'll follow you later. It's almost like an excuse or uh, putting it off or something like that. Well, any time I won't immediately do everything God says, what have I got that's more important than that? You know, God's will comes first. Whatever else I can fit in. You can't serve two masters. You've got to have one thing that is, is the governing factor. What do you do when there's a conflict between two things you need to do? Which one do you do? You know, who do you listen to? Well, it has to be the Lord. It always has to be, I do whatever he says. Then whatever else I can do, great. But his will comes first. So, think about the connection between those stories of the healings that showed the 
authority Jesus had. The power to cleanse the leper. The power to say a word that would heal the centurion's servant. The power to take away the fever of uh, Simon's mother. Well, that's the, we need to recognize that authority to be a disciple. We need to see him as the one who has the right to tell us exactly what to do. All right, anything through verse 22? Twenty three to twenty seven. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being in cover with the wave. But Jesus himself was asleep. And they come to him, wake woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea. And he became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, What kind of a man is this? That even the winds and the sea obey him. Okay. So Jesus has authority over more than just sickness. And we'll see that here. They're in this boat, <coughs> and what happens on the sea? Yeah, this terrible <coughs> storm. Evidently just quite a storm. And how? what's Jesus doing? Sleeping. Wonder how you could sleep through a storm like that. But he's calm. He's he's nothing's bothering him. And the disciples, how are they feeling? A little stressed out. Yeah. Very stressed out. You know, terrified. You know, and they're they're you know wake Jesus up, save us, Lord, we're perishing. Isn't it interesting to see the difference between the calmness of Jesus? And the frantic, you know, appeal of the disciples. And, and when they wake him up, instead of calming the sea, what's the first thing Jesus does? Calms the men. Yeah, he balls them out. He doesn't, say, he doesn't chide them for waking him up, but for having so many fears. You know, focus on the Lord, not on the storm. They're all worried about the storm. You know, Jesus doesn't see a need for that. Why don't you trust? Then he rebukes the winds of the sea and it was perfectly calm. What does that show you about Jesus? He is the, uh, he is God, he is the creator of the universe and he knows everything. Exactly. Because who is the only one that can calm the storm? I mean, you see that in a lot of Psalms. And in some other passages also, that God is the God of the storm. That God is the God who, who controls the storm. Can you think of a time in Bible history when God stopped a storm? Uh, I think, I don't know whether he did this that you're talking about. Like when the, the uh, Moses was leading the, the Israel. He opened up he opened the Red up Sea. The water, so this is kind of like the sea. The sea it storm. is. So it's God. They thought that God was the one who... You know, you know, God was the one who opened up the, the Red Sea. Now Jesus is doing the same thing, saying that I am God who... But there's a time when God actually stilled a storm. Remember that one? Where was that? Jonah. Jonah. Jonah was trying to run away from God. God hurled a huge wind on the sea, and it became really stormy. And then when, when they obeyed God and threw Joseph, Jonah overboard, see, so just calmed. You see, God's the one who can control the sea. And look at what Jesus does. Do you see why they asked, 
What kind of a man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? This is no ordinary man. He did what only God can do. God is the only one that controls the storm and the sea. When you trust in the Lord, you can be calm in the storm. You can fall asleep in anything because the Lord's in control. Comments and questions on that one? It's just kind of interesting that the winds and the sea became perfectly calm. So now they're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee with no wind. So their sails are not going to send them anywhere. So now they have to row. You know, okay, so now it's completely, completely still. Well, but you think about it. What if a storm stopped? Would that stop the waves immediately? Those waves would continue for a long, long, long time, just gradually diminishing. But when Jesus said the word, he didn't just stop the storm. He stopped the wave action right, right there. That's just incredible. Nobody can do that. No wonder they wondered what kind of man this was. But it shows his power and authority. He can command diseases. He can command nature. When they woke him up in verse 25... They say, save us, we are perishing. What did they expect him to do? Uh, you I don't pass know. out the life preservers? Or, or, <laughs> well, no. yeah, I mean, they're desperate. They need help. He's their leader. Yeah. I think that is, you know, they believe in Jesus, that, that he can do some, some trick, but they didn't expect that the whole, you know, <laughs> perfectly calm, uh, the, red, uh, the perfectly calm seat. They probably were thinking, he's going to do something, but I don't know what he's going to do. Yeah, he's certainly proven that he's got special power. But this shocks them when he does it this way. You might think about it this way. You know, the, many of these guys on the boat with him were fishermen. They'd been out on boats a lot. They knew storms. Jesus heals people, that's one thing. Jesus calms the sea that they knew so well. That would have more impact on them because they're more familiar with that. What should they have done? He said that they didn't have faith. Well, I think they should have been calmer and trusted the Lord and maybe awaken Jesus instead of saying, don't you care that we're perishing? Maybe say, you know, there's a terrible storm. We know you can calm it. <laughs> you know? If you are willing, you can. <laughs> well, when we get all agitated and flustered, what are we going to do? What are we showing about ourselves? We don't really trust God. If we really trust Him that that He'd take care of us, He'd do the right thing, then we can be calm. When we get all agitated and, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do, this isn't working out, I don't know what to do, this is is terrible. Well, we don't think God's in control. We don't think God can handle it. We don't think God will do the best thing. I mean, why would we be like that? It's almost like a child. You know, what would Joseph's dad think if he got all worried all the time? I don't know what we're going to do. What are we going to do if this happens? What are we going to do if that happens? What are we going to do, Dad, if, if we don't have any food? You know, or things like that. Do you ever ask your dad, what are you going to do if there's no food? <laughs> Why don't you? Because God will probably take care of us. Yeah. 
That's that's a very good answer, Joseph. The other thing is, I mean, have you always had food to eat, pretty much? Yeah. Who 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 works in your family to make money? Yeah. Can you trust him to take care of you with that? Yeah. Can you imagine his dad, if his little kids were like all worried? I don't know what we're going to do to eat tomorrow, Dad. Well, it's like, well, I can take care of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I got things under control. You don't need to worry. And our Heavenly Father has things under control. When we are so fretful, where's our faith? It's a good lesson for us in storms. Other comments or thoughts on that one? So that works for spiritual things, too. Like, not just worrying about food and things like being worried about growing or, you know, like figuring out problems and stuff like that. Like, I think in every situation we trust the Lord. We are concerned about other people because we know they may not do what they ought to do, and that concerns us. But we believe the Lord will do His part exactly right, and we trust Him to do that. How many times does this happen? It seems like a dozen times, but there's one other when he's walking on the water and there's a storm and he calms Yes. Him. Are there more than these those two? Or is it just repeated in all the Gospels so, so often that it seems, <laughs> it seems like, like it? Well, there are some other miracles at sea, but I don't think there's any more like calming of the storms. And there's like the time that he told them to let down their nets in the deep water for the catch. And there's the time they had the miraculous catch in John 21 where they got 153 fish while Jesus was on the shore resurrected. He does some some interesting things on the water. But as far as I can remember... This is the only time he was asleep in the boat when the storm came. I think this is the only time in the Bible we see Jesus asleep. Period. (laughs) You know, he slept. I'm sure he did. I mean, you know, he got tired and he was a man. But I don't think there's ever another time it records Jesus sleeping. The waves were rocking him to sleep. Uh, yeah. Whoa, whoa. Well, when he was walking on the water, didn't the boat suddenly like appear at the other side? Yes. Okay. Yes. So if you want to count that as an additional well, point, thing, but yes. But also- yes. Good questions, good comments. All right, how about 28 to 34? When he came to the other side into the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. And they cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. The demons began to entreat him, saying, If you are going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. And they came out and went into the swine, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. The herdsmen ran away and went to the city and reported everything, including what had happened to the demoniacs. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they implored him to leave their region. All right, so Jesus is on the other side of the sea in a Gentile region, and two men who are demon-possessed come to him. Is there anything that strikes you as interesting about that already? The fact that there's two of 
Yes. What is strange about there being two of them? In Mark, there's only one. In Mark, he only mentions one. And here, Matthew sees double. He's got two. Wonder which one's right. Mark only mentions one. That doesn't mean there's only one. Yes. You know, what if I said, uh, you know, I saw John Smith in town today. Well, I also saw Mary Smith, but I didn't mention her. You know, I hadn't seen him in years. You know, when you say, I saw so-and-so, or I did this for so-and-so, does that mean there wasn't anybody else around that's the only person you saw? No. So, sometimes the gospel will focus on a miracle with one person. Some other gospel will group them and mention the couple that were, were healed or whatever. There's no contradiction there. There's just a focus on one in one of the Gospels and a focus on both in the other one. So there's two demon-possessed men here. And uh, what do the demons feel like? You're early. Yeah. Yeah, this is before the time. Why are you tormenting us now? They are not happy. You know, they're pretty fretful in the presence of Jesus. What do they ask Jesus? Can we go hang out with the pigs? Yeah, they ask if they could enter the pigs because Jesus was casting them out. They don't want to just go out and maybe like have to go back home, which is not a good place for demons. So can we go into these pigs? Now you can see why they'd prefer to eat, uh, enter a pig than to go back to the hell. <coughs> but you're not expecting Jesus to say yes. You know, isn't that amazing that Jesus was okay with the request of some demons? But what happened when those demons entered the pigs? Demons ran down to the water, ran into the sea. Yeah, they thundered over a cliff and, and were drowned. Uh, I suppose the demons had not anticipated that result. You know, they didn't know that the pigs were going to go berserk whenever they got in, infested by demons. And so there you have it. You know, so much for the demons, uh, you know, on that one. And uh, so Jesus calmed the sea and now he calms the land. By the way, do you see a lot of things in this story that remind you this is an unclean setting? Pigs, Pigs and <laughs> demons and tombs. This is all an unclean setting. And uh, <laughs> so the herdsmen go into the city and tell the people of the city what's happened to their pigs. And what do they come out and say? Go away. Yeah. Why? Now. Yeah, exactly. Jesus is uh, hurting the uh, the pocketbook. You know, they lost their pigs over this. They don't want any more to do with a guy who's going to hurt their pigs. Um, it's interesting. Who else had just before this in the story asked Jesus to leave, more or less? Or, or I'm thinking the demons in this story. The demons didn't want to have anything to do with him. Now the people in town don't want to have anything to do with him because... You know, they preferred their pigs to Jesus. You know, so what matters to them is finances, not the Lord. Bad choice. Comments, questions? Sometimes, though, demons try to kill 
of people live through this. There have been times. But that doesn't seem to be the norm. Okay. Well, I wouldn't surprise me if the demon, like, to see a demon causing the pigs to do this, but I guess in this case, they... Yeah, I think the demons got outsmarted. I don't really think the demons realized what was going to happen with the pigs. Because I'm guessing when the pigs go over the cliff, then they have to go back to the abyss. Right. <laughs> Where else are they going to go? But they can't even go into the pigs unless Jesus gives, gives them permission. Which is impressive. Yeah. How many times would we rather have the pigs than the Lord? We like bacon too much. <laughs> All right, comments and questions about this? What's our time frame tonight? Are we okay? Doing another story? Okay. All right, chapter 9, verses 1 to 8. Giving the chair about Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. 